and unsurpassed penetrating and perfect dharma is rarely met with even in a hundred thousand million kalpas having it to see and listen to to remember and accept I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words Good morning I am the first one this time which is more nerve-wracking <laughs> It's much better to be the second one. You know, I'm up in Oregon. We had to come up here to deal with a woodpecker issue. And so it, I'm broadcasting through a hotspot on my phone. So if it gets choppy, I may turn off the video and, and try and try and make it a little easier on the signal. But we'll see. It seems okay right now. I'm noticing that those of you in the Zendo, someone hit the hand raise uh, symbol. Is that indicating to me that someone's trying to tell me something i don't think so okay just just a, a fat finger yeah before i kind of get rolling on this we're um discovering to our delight up here that there seems to be chickadees around and we learned when we went to yosemite last year the call of the chickadee and it's really recognizable I'll tell you the same thing that the guy told us, which is once I tell you this, this call, you will never forget it because chickadees say cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds like cheeseburger, cheeseburger. And you can have long conversations with chickadees just doing that back to them. You'll hear them go, doo, doo, doo. and if you do it back, they'll, they will go for hours back and forth with you. It's really, it's delightful. So that has nothing to do with my lecture. I just wanted to talk about it. <laughs> so I'm talking about the sixth uh, clear mind precept, vowing not to speak of others' faults. I know that this is, this is one that comes up a lot for me. I know it come, seems to come up a, a lot for a lot of people. I backed way off on quoting from texts and stuff this time, but I did want to start with one. And this is from Mind of Clover. It's Aitken talking about this particular precept. And he says, uh, the ephemeral world is made up of relative elements, high and low, light and dark, loud and quiet. The sixth precept shows us how we can find intimacy with this world. The silent mind intuits directly and truly. She has an awful temper or he is thoughtless of his friends. These can be experienced as basic information, free of any moral judgment and on par with her hair is brown or he has big feet. On the other hand, fault finding, discussing the faults of others, these are acts of rejection. The difference is one of attitude. And I think this, this quote really helped me a lot because there is a delineation between acting on facts that you are given, or at least what you perceive to be reasonable facts that you are given, and speaking of others' faults. You can see someone in your life who maybe dismisses their friend's needs. You know, a friend needed something from them and they did not respond to that. And maybe you see that happen to this person more than from this person more than once. And maybe you start to say, maybe that's not someone I go to when I have these sorts of needs. So that's you've got some facts under your belt. 
like you've seen this thing happen you've made a decision you're like yeah if i need this sort of thing done i'm going to go to this person and your perspective is not total you don't know what's happening in the lives of that person that hasn't responded to the other other person's needs but you have kind of weighed out some evidence and decided that you are better off asking someone else for help so the trick is can you do that without judging that person can you do that without going to someone else and saying you know that guy i don't trust him that's the difference and i think that's what aiken's talking about when he says the difference is one of attitude i don't believe that this precept prohibits you from making decisions only from expressing judgments maybe even not from making judgments if you know if you're particularly adept i am not i judge people way too much i am getting better about it i think i know i'm getting better about expressing that judgment but perhaps in some way this precept is partially about the thing that those of us in recovery refer to as faking it until you make it behaving as if you have not judged so that you have experienced a feeling that's like not having judged. It's often a good feeling when you realize you've done it and can start and it can start an almost foundational change in how you relate to others if you uh, practice it repeatedly. Now here's the thing and, and Mary often reminding me that I, I do this. I noticed that as I was jotting down notes for this, I was writing, perceive others and how I think about others. And I realized that I, I write that because I'm prejudicial against myself. I think it's fair to say that we also hold others in, in here. You know, it, you have to go back and, and as soon as you start talking about things like this, you start jumping to things like Walt Whitman. You, you go to, do I contradict myself very well? Then I contradict myself. I am large. I contain multitudes. I have others. I also, and maybe even more appropriately here, because I'm, I'm being mean to those others. I think about um, in the Bible, in the book of Mark, when uh, Jesus is purportedly approached by a possessed man and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, or we are many. That quote has, has always had a chilling effect to me, but I think uh, it's appropriate here because there's many in here and I'm, I'm looking at them in, in a way that, that treats them as foreign. Now, now, I don't believe, you believe what you want to, but I don't believe that we're possessed by anything other than uses of our own identities, just combining and separating and diluting and reacting with each other. But it can feel like we're spending time outside of the identities it can feel like we're we're um speaking uh, spending time outside of the prime identity often just speaking of its faults so we start saying things like why can't i pay more attention which i think is speaking of others faults i think it's an other that we're criticizing i'm so out of shape i'm so unlikable look i did that stupid thing again i say these things to myself all the time it's much easier to clamp my mouth shut when I want to speak of an other that's outside 
that's something I can kind of recognize is coming. If I'm good about it and I can feel that change in my body, I can say, I'm about to say something negative about, about this other person. I can clamp my mouth shut. It's kind of, it's almost a physical reaction. And, you know, I, I can, I can feel it happening. And if with a little bit of awareness, I can kind of clamp the mouth shut, push it off to the side, talk about something different. I can do that sometimes, but stopping myself with the self-criticism, that's different. That's like trying to stop a river that's bursting its dam. For me, that is the other, I need to stop criticizing. So. Let's make sure that when we're talking about trying not to speak of others' faults, that we don't just fill in the gap by speaking of our own. Self-reflection can be good. Self-flagellation, not so good. So why is this particular precept so seductively difficult to adhere to? I've come to a lot of full moon ceremonies. And at our check-ins, this one, I'm maybe I'm pushing it, but I'm going to say 75% of the time, it is the thing that people say, this is the precept I'm having problems with right now. Why is it so delicious to us to discuss the faults that we perceive in others? I have some thoughts. Often I, I think back, I, you know, I grew up in Texas and when I was growing up, I read the great columnist Molly Ivins weekly and, and, and just adored her. And she had this idea of a thing called that she called the Bubba syndrome. And it goes something like this. My grandfather worked this farm and he made a good living. My father worked this farm and he made a good living. Now I work this farm and my family is starving. I work hard. I do the things I was taught to do, but I'm failing my family. What could possibly be wrong? So this is someone who perceives unfairness and he's scared and he needs a reason to blame. He needs, he needs something to blame this on. And he will often reach out to a, a person, sometimes a class of people. Sometimes it'll be a class of people defined by a skin color, but he wants to point out someone and point out their faults to explain the lack of justice in, in his situation. Now, this is kind of an extreme example, uh, but we all get confused when things seem unfair. And though our situations may not be as dire as the farmers, we often feel compelled to blame it on someone. So-and-so is such a jerk and he's getting away with murder and it's causing me to suffer and it's unfair. We enumerate their faults or again, our own sometimes, because maybe we're sabotaging ourselves and we want to blame ourselves because it seems to make the situation make sense. A thing I often think about when I start veering into this sort of thinking is about fairness and, and justice. And, and see, it's interesting. As soon as I say the word justice, my mind jumped to Clarence Thomas because I want to blame him for my lack of justice in this world. So I, I did it like almost automatically and just saw myself do it. But what I was going to say before I hit, thought that was I heard someone in the AA meeting say something I found really useful in situations like this, where he said, um, I used to always complain that bad things were always happening to me until one day I realized that I didn't really factor into it. 
things were just happening. I love this. Anytime I start pushing towards someone explain why this is all unjust, or I'm going to start picking targets to be mad at, sometimes I can, I can say to myself, well, maybe this isn't really about me. <laughs> Another reason like that we might start speaking of others' faults is uh, we feel self-conscious about something in ourselves, something that maybe we're not proud of, something that we consider a weakness or a flaw. It may embarrass us tremendously, and that sense of shame can be really, really painful. And as a sort of palliative, we might point out this flaw in somebody else. We might say, look at how terrible this person is when they do whatever. I barely do that at all. And, you know, we're, co we're covering up the thing that we absolutely know that we do and we're ashamed by. Or maybe we have things about ourselves that we don't feel good about. And we just want to point out any negative quality in someone else because it boosts our positive feelings about ourselves. Look at me. I'm at least better than that person. If you were uh, in the class on Wednesday, we talked a little bit uh, about using the fifth precept about not intoxicating self or others as a kind of litmus test with which we could measure our reactions to other precepts. I would suggest that someone denigrating ourselves in order to make ourselves feel better is a kind of intoxication. In some ways, it, it makes us it clouds us over with a little bit of warmth. It throws like a veil of mind-clouding dopamine in front of our, our eyes because suddenly we've elevated ourselves. And I think, and I'm just going to end with this, I, I think that it's only through a lot of zazen that we can find the space to notice, especially in our bodies, that we're craving the ego boost that might cause us to speak of others' faults. Once we have that space and we can step away from that impulse, we'll find probably <laughs> that we suffer a lot less over the long term. I'll take a couple of questions and then we'll, we'll get to Liam. Thank you. Steve. First of all, can you see the clock or do you need the clock? I can't see it at all. Uh, how long are we actually going to? My computer has a clock, so it's right here. I think it's uh, 10.50, so there's plenty of time. Okay. And it's, it's just us. We don't have to be anywhere, so. <laughs> I got a woodpecker to deal with. <laughs> uh, did you have a question, Steve, or were you just asking I about that? I also had a question, yes. Um, or more like, a, more like a comment that I hadn't quite thought of it that way in that making a an observation about somebody and noting that somebody's unreliable that's actually a thing of mine is people who are unreliable and then there's the other part so if there's somebody who's unreliable do i just not rely on them that's simple and if somebody says hey i'm going to ask so and so to do this really important thing in that case i might say well, let me talk about this for a moment and try to be gentle about it. But my tendency is rather if somebody's unreliable, I say, I think about them and another precept comes up that's invoked, which is anger. I get angry at them. I harbor ill will about them. 
So that's that's a really interesting thing you point out. And another really interesting thing is is the fault finding with one's oneself. And I've noticed that actually I'm I'm watching myself carefully right now, but I, I noticed that when sometimes in a in a particularly in a full moon ceremony where we're during the check-in, I actually try to make something a little bit worse than it is. Like it's almost like yeah, I violated this precept because that's what our job is here. And I'm not sure why I do that, but um, that's part of um, the mea culpa as opposed to just stating this is the precept I'm working with or something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. You know, it, it, it's funny that the, that line between, um, you know, a- acting on something that you that feels like a, a just a fact, a thing that you've seen, and speaking of others' faults, it, it can be really shaky. I, I did a thing recently. Well, I, I noticed a thing at my job recently where if I wrote sentences that had a semicolon in it, that is exactly the point that people would stop reading my email. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just a weird thing that I started noticing. I was like, wait, how did you get this information, but then none of the rest of it? And so for for a while, I just kind of was like, well, I just need to adapt to this. Like, like people evidently don't like punctuation beyond commas and periods. And so I just started kind of trying to write things in, in a different way that made more sense. But then I started making a big deal out of it. And and I was like, you know, I and and you know, I started treating people like they were dumb. And it wasn't fair. It was, it was far more likely that I was a bad writer, but but it was it was right on that edge. I was like, you know, this was instructional for me because I learned a better way to get my message across. But then I took it too far and started making fun of the fact that people would stop at the semicolon. It's 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 a slippery slope. Lee, relate to that. Sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry. What's that, Steve? Oh, sorry. I just want to say I absolutely relate to that. I don't know if mine is semicolons, but you know, I, I say two things and people respond to only one. Uh, yeah. <laughs> also going to, okay. Can I communicate better versus what's wrong with these people? <laughs> yeah. Um, Liam. <laughs> I like semicolons, but that's not my comment. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I hadn't ever thought about it in the way of othering, othering oneself mm. and, and uh, speaking of one's own faults. And that's something that I've done a lot, especially when I was young, you know, pretty heavy duty. I don't, I think I do it a lot less, a lot less now, a whole lot less. And I notice a, a direct correlation between the less I do it to myself, the less I do it to other people. Mm. It seems to be a direct correlation so thank you for, uh, I hadn't thought of that. Thank you for pointing that out. Thank you. That That's a really useful thing to think about. Like the, if, if I can be kinder to myself, perhaps I will start being kinder to others. <laughs> uh, Mary, I, I saw you. Yeah. yeah, thank you. I, um, I just, uh, there are a bunch of things about that. Uh, I understand Suzuki Roshi used to say, don't say so-and-so is always late say so-and-so is liable to be late <laughs> so at least you give them a chance <laughs> and and i uh but the other thing is that i i was noticing as i talked on buddha's birthday 
um, what's something I'm well aware of, which is that my tendency is to judge and to go to the negative and critical. And the way I've been thinking about that lately is about this notion, uh, it's about whether I feel safe or not. In other words, mm -hmm. the finger starts pointing, including this way, but the finger starts pointing when I don't feel safe. And so criticizing others, and uh, I think it does include the one inside, but that being critical is uh, self-protective for me. And I think that's not uncommon. I appreciate what you've been saying. Thank you. Thank you. And yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I certainly do the same thing. It's, it's a sense of self-protection, like, look, look, it's not me. This, this is the problem over there. <laughs> I do exactly the same thing. Yeah, Kate. Thank you, Kelly. I related to a lot of the things that you were talking about. And having worked in communication for so many years at Kaiser, I certainly get it about <laughs> trying to to uh, get people to respond. I liked that you called attention to uh, sensing where it is in our bodies, because that's something that really has deepened for me over over the years. I, I never used to pay attention to that at all. And so it gives me another uh, moment in my pausing <laughs> and another something else to do with my attention. And I too liked that you talked about how you other yourself from what I hear over and over again from other people is we all have a tendency to do that in a big way. And what I notice in myself is when I'm being harsh or critical in any way, it, I tighten something in me is tense. And so if I reconnect to my breath, it gives me more options. It doesn't mean it always changes anything, but it does shift. It shifts something. And I'm not even sure I can articulate it, but it gives me more room. And therefore, I'm more at ease in a situation and less quick to say the thing I was about to say. <laughs> even to myself. I think Mary said to me once, just pat yourself on the shoulder and say, they're there, they're there. <laughs> and that's been very useful for me. It's, it's a very nice mental thing to have in my toolkit when that harshness and tightness comes up. And if I breathe and pay attention to my breath and I can sometimes release that tension or ease it a little bit. I also think that culturally we're in a place where we are bombarded with people talking about each other's faults. <laughs> it's what makes the news. Yeah. And as much as I even tell myself, don't feed yourself that to me, it's, it's so seductive and that ties it back to the intoxicating part. There's something about that righteous anger. How could they do that? And these idiots are doing that again. And how could anybody think 
that kind of response. And why do I go for that before I go to the article about how this group in Texas is reaching out to women who can't get abortion services and finding <laughs> there's plenty of those stories out there there's a lot of them but it's not what's front and center in the media that that is most visible and available to yeah. us so uh, i try to stay aware of that as well so thank you yeah thank you the, those are those are great comments and and i uh I, I always wonder, because you're right, we do get bombarded by this stuff. And I, I know people sort of tangentially that that they actually kind of make a living just by creating that kind of thing, like by just saying, this is bad. Look, I'm just going to criticize this and just criticize this. And all I can think is, boy, that's a miserable way to make a living. Um, Lisa, did you put your hands up? Was it? No, I didn't, but I... Oh, I'll, I thought I'd tell you, but sorry. I'll just say... Uh, one other thing that struck me is like, actually, it is even weirdly a way that people bond by mm -hmm. gossiping. Like it's, it's a, it's so human to do that. Yeah. Yeah. It goes, goes back to that intoxicating effect. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we bond sometimes by drinking, we bond sometimes by gossiping. Anyway, okay. Thank you very much. Let me, let me get out of Liam's way and, <laughs> so he can do the next precept you're, you're never in the way <laughs> <laughs> so the next precept uh, is very much related to the one that kelly was just talking about i vow not to praise self at the expense of others our full moon ceremony the second part which is from dogan reads and uh, i'm going to quote a lot as opposed to kelly because i found some good stuff so so Dogen wrote, Buddhas and ancestors realize the vast sky and the great earth. When they manifest the noble body, there is no inside nor outside in emptiness. When they manifest the Dharma body, there is not even a bit of earth on the ground. No inside and no outside in emptiness. No distinctions. I, I make distinctions all day long and habitual patterns are very strong. Uh, Daidu Lori talks about this precept saying, we can't practice this precept by suppressing the desire to elevate the self and put down others. We can't practice it by trying to praise others. That too accomplishes nothing but separation. This precept is about the unity of self and other. It is about seeing the possibility of realizing that unity so consciously trying to change habits, which we're kind of talking about, uh, is useful. And I, and I do work on that, but it doesn't eliminate that sense of separation by itself. Now, recognizing myself and others requires me looking at all those unpleasant bits about myself that I don't want to look at. And it's so much easier to project them onto other people. So why not do that? But... <laughs> But to the degree that I can do that, that separation lessens. I recognize someone doing something that I might have been critical of and, and recognizing that in myself. He talks about praising others 
it just creates more separate or it just it still creates separation more and from an absolute standpoint that's right and but at the same time expressing appreciation of others thanking others uh, brings us closer so uh, Rev Anderson said one of the main ways that we express our attachment to self is our constant effort to present ourselves in favorable light. We are anxious about whether we are worthy of being supported by the universe, uncertain that the world has enough love and resources to go around. Thinking of our merits and finding some skillful way to let others know about them is a fundamental function of the human psyche. He knows me so well. Yeah. Dharma said, Self-nature is clear, and it is obvious in the sphere of equal dharma, not making any distinction between oneself and others is called the precept of refraining from elevating the self and blaming others. To even give rise to the notion that there is someone to blame violates this precept. So okay, touched on this some. Um, you know, I've come to really trust you know, if I say something critical of somebody and I'm paying attention, I don't feel so good. Just physically, there's something that doesn't feel good. And, and I really trust that, uh, that body wisdom. I think that becomes increasingly important to me the longer that I practice paying attention to what's happening. Dai Dulore talks about how the essence of the self, according to Western philosophy, is what we call the soul. The experience of Buddhists, thousands of them, men and women, over, for over 2,500 years has been that when you go beyond the aggregates, what remains is nothing, no self. There never was a self to begin with. It was an idea all along. That notion of a self, the Buddha says, is the cause of suffering. We forget the self in Zazen. It seems like Zazen comes up in all the precepts to me, if we're uh, <laughs> practicing that don't know mind and just inhabiting the present, we don't cause all these problems. In his instructions to the Tenzo Dogen wrote, fools look at themselves as if looking at another. Realized persons look at others and see themselves. The oneness of self and other is the reality realized by Buddhas. The absence of self and other is the, realize, is the reality realized by Buddhas. I'm not an actualized Buddha, so that's, that's, uh, that's, that's a high bar. I don't always see myself and others. And some people can be so extreme that it's really difficult to see myself and certain political figures or whatever it is. But if I'd been born in a different place, under different circumstances, in a totally different environment, you know, I, I could be that guy that I can't relate to. All, in all my own strong opinions, uh, there's the seeds for what in a different environment could have, could have been uh, grown into something extreme <laughs> in views and actions. But luckily, I didn't grow up in that different environment. From Rev Anderson, he says, it is a point where we turn from self-clinging to self-forgetting. It is extremely joyful, but it is rarely easy. It requires complete presence and total devotion. 
Hakuin had an expression, uh, something like zazen in activity is a thousand times more valuable than zazen in stillness. So Hakuin liked to be dramatic. I don't know if it's a thousand times more valuable, but it's it's super important to not forget. It's easy to, I did my morning sitting and then I'll do my evening sitting and then during the day I'll just <laughs> let my mind go crazy. But it's very important, you know, periodically, if you can find ways throughout the day, just come back. What am I doing? Just just immerse myself in uh, whatever the activity is throughout the day. You know, and occasionally we get a little taste of, uh, you know, we get a taste of what that's like. And you might think, oh, what would that be like to do that all day long? And, and I get the sense it would be pretty nice. But I, th I think it's going to take a number of lifetimes to actually be able to do that. And we have to separate the function, but can we do that with the awareness of not really being separate? And, uh, I'll end with uh, something Daidu Lori had to say. The person who seems to be an adversary making our lives miserable is nobody but ourselves. <laughs> The stress that we experience in our life is not coming from someplace else. We create it. The sooner we realize it, the sooner we're able to do something about it. So that's good advice from Daidu Lori. So if there's any comments or questions. Uh, Abby. Yeah, I just want to say with both of your presentations, yours and um, <clears throat> Kelly's, I'm always thinking the fact that we have language that just as Kelly started off, can you not just see something as brown, but even that is a judgment. And I'm always, I'm very aware of that because I, I come from critical parents, you know, so I've really worked all my life hard and I'm able to do that outside, you know, trying just to see, see what it is and not have, any of that oh that person's fat it's just it that per, you know just to see it the size and not have that actually but doing it of course for myself i have these i guess high critical standards and i am not yet able to really as kate said mary told you know oh yeah it's okay you know or invite it in and let it go it is so automatic to be critical with my own self at all levels, bodily, you know, you're not moving right. It's a hard one for me and that the physical side of it, even though I'm aware of the body. So it's that critical standard in myself I've not been able to deal with yet. That's all I wanted to say, but it's all again, language and body reaction. I think a lot of us share that. I think that's often that's the hardest one. And uh, I haven't read a lot of Pema, but I get uh, the impression that Pema Chodron uh, talks a lot about that and the importance that you got to start with yourself. And I think there is a direct relation to the, the more that you can be kind to yourself, uh, the easier it is to be kind to other people. Well, I know people that are super kind to everybody else, but just horrible to themselves. <laughs> I have a good friend. Yeah, there's a lot of us, Abby. <laughs> it's pretty common. So uh, you've got lots of company. <laughs> Be nice to yourself. <laughs> You're a good person. Thank you, Liam. <laughs>
I'll so say all of us. <laughs> Kelly? Thanks, Liam. I, I just wanted to say real quick, um, talking about the that, uh, you know, criticizing others or, or praising self in, in terms of there being no others to criticize or there being no difference between the self that they're praising and others really cuts straight to the heart of the whole matter. And, and it, almost we could have done both of our lectures just by saying that and it would have, it would have uh, summated the problem very well so so thank you for pointing that out that was really useful yeah and of course it's one thing to understand that and it's another thing to actualize it that's that's where there's so much work is that steve Akuin's quote that you gave about zazen and activity being a thousand times more valuable than zazen and stillness. I have a, a tip that I haven't really used in this particular way, but that I had a therapist give me a long time ago. I was obsessing about something all the time. And uh, my job was to set a 15 minute timer when the obsession started and do something else that was maybe enjoyable, maybe productive, but certainly that was not that thing. And that would be absorbing. And mm -hmm. Then, then allow myself to obsess after the 15 minutes. The cool thing is that I don't have to obsess after that. And, and after some practice, 15 minutes goes by, hey, I'll keep doing it. I don't need to obsess now. Mm. And then another 15 minutes and, you know, build it. I imagine that something like that could work to bring our minds <laughs> to, into active zazen. Haven't tried it in that context though. There are things you can do. I mean, I've heard of people using different methods, like every time they flip a light switch or something, use that as a trigger to, to pay attention or just some little daily thing that you do. I haven't tried it that specifically. It could be useful. Can we go back to your comment about 15, 20 minutes ago that you are less critical of yourself than you used to be and therefore, and find yourself less critical of others too. I notice, I don't know that I'm less critical of myself, but I, when I screw up, I don't care as much as I used to. I don't beat myself up as much as I used to. And I wonder if you think that's just part of getting old, <laughs> older, or is it from years of practice? I know I've talked to other people who have expressed other people kind of my age or older who express something like that and they they are not practicing buddhism or anything you think it's part of getting older and maybe your your ego is holding on less tight and don't give a damn anymore <laughs> well you know it's hard to parse those things out i think it can be just part of getting older but i know plenty of grumpy old people that are mad and criticizing all the time too so it doesn't automatically happen that's I mean, criticizing themselves yeah well yeah okay but uh yeah it's hard that's probably a combination uh lisa i actually have a hard time understanding this precept or differentiating it from the one the the one that they're one before it because usually i don't encounter people 
because we're all talking about how much we criticize ourselves, right? I rarely encounter people like praising themselves. And I, I don't, I, I really like, oh, I'm so fantastic. I did that thing so wonderfully and, and nobody else could do it as well as I do. You know, I feel like that's what the, the precept is, but I, I, I feel like it's much more common to um, criticize others and sort of indirectly by criticizing others, even though you're not stating it, it's implied that, well, those people do all that crap, but I don't. I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of parse out the difference between the two. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap. And I think that's right, that kind of by criticizing somebody else, you're implying that I'm, that I'm better. And uh, Reb puts it, um, like the way he puts it, thinking of our merits and finding some skillful way to let others know about them. <laughs> Yeah, it's more subtle usually. It's not so overt. Yeah, there is a lot of overlap between the two. Mary? You reminded me, I like the way you talked about this, um, that I think of it sometimes as, as uh, by comparing, I cost myself the other. In other words, I cost myself the uh, connection. And it is expensive. And, and uh, anyway, that's that's I try to remember that there there is there is a cost to that uh, habit of of uh, comparing, and and uh, and I think it is often subtle, like Reb and, and Lisa were saying. Yeah, thank, yeah, that's that's good. Thank you. Abby, I just want to say, uh, from what Mary's saying, I'm very, I'm, I really take the precept of gossip for, uh, really strongly. I really try absolutely not to do that. And I realize to do that is it takes a lot of energy and I don't want to spend my time that way. Besides it being a nasty thing to do, you know, who am I to say blah, blah, blah. It's a very, the cost for the energy of putting one's mind there is, is mm -hmm. very expensive. So, yeah. I, I mean, that's one of the few precepts I really, really try to keep on, on, on track to never do, except if I, on an occasion when there is a, a, a friend or a situation that uh, seems very painful that I can't understand and need some guidance to. In that case, there may be a, I give myself very clearly permission to perhaps dis discuss this this situation that is psychologically extremely problematic, but mm -hmm. mostly I won't do that in any sense. That sounds a little different than gossiping, though. I mean, sometimes yeah, that, I make I make that distinction there again. My use my judgment knows. Thank you. We're a little past eleven, so unless there's another burning question or comment I'll wrap up beings are numberless i vow to save them delusions are inexhaustible i vow to end them dharma gates are boundless i vow to enter them
Whoever's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it. Beings are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable, I vow to become it.